Yes, recording. Glenn, hi, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Nice to meet you, Richard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the first time we've sort of been one-on-one. We were just discussing yes. beforehand how I did um, one of your uh, workshops, online workshops yes. during lockdown, which was, um, which was great. Um, so where, where are you at the moment? I'm in my office in Derry in Northern Ireland, so the northwest of Northern Ireland. In a, yeah, we're just getting the ages of Storm Barra, so it's nippy enough outside. And, uh, but yeah, this is, this is where I'm based. I'm living in Coleraine, which is about 20-odd miles away. But uh, this is where my office and my, yeah. my one-to-one room is. I was going to ask about the storm because um, this morning on the news, there was I just happened to tune in when someone was reporting from, from Cork. I know Cork's not yeah. the same place that you are, but, but essentially there was a worry over the whole of uh, yeah. that part of the world. Um, yeah, so they, they seem to be getting a really bad pattern about it. It's, um, you know, there's, people have been told to stay away from the coast and trees and whatever else yeah. are, are in danger. So, yeah. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? It's tough. But yeah. you, you look well wrapped up there. Well, that's that's why I'm well wrapped up because uh, it's a bit chilly here. Oh, you are sat <laughs> so, indoors, aren't you? You're not outdoors. I am <laughs> indoors. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. But I'm well. Ha- I'm well wrapped up. This is say. Good. 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 All right. Brilliant. Now, um, the the thing that, um, that that sort of brought us together, the thing was, uh, is of course motivational interviewing. Yeah. Um, how how did you get into that? Yeah. That. It, it was something I, many years ago, I trained as a social worker and I had been working in mental health and I then joined an addictions team and which was primarily at that time an alcohol service with drugs as a bolt on. But we, I was given the opportunity to go to Scotland and train in motivation interviewing, which at that time, I suppose nearly 30 years ago, it was primarily seen as an alcohol intervention. And what was interesting about that was I had... Alongside of my social work training, I had trained as a counsellor in a very person-centred uh, agency. And when I, when I was first introduced to addictions, I spent about three weeks in an inpatient unit. And I tell people the story that I spent the next three months shouting at people. Um, because that's, what I wit- that's, no, that's not what I witnessed. That's what I thought I witnessed. And I understand it now is that it was a service offering what's called a Minnesota model and the idea is, is that the reason why you've got an addiction is because your ego is inflated in the wrong way. What we need to do is deflate it first and then reflate it in a healthy way. So that's why you see in the TV the people getting sitting in the hot seat and people tearing strips off them and to bring them, bring them down to the size. Um, but for some reason, it, it, I was able to do it, but it, it didn't feel right. And, and then I was introduced to motivational interviewing. And that's when it clicked. So the person-centered aspect of, of my social work training and my, uh, and my counseling training sat alongside what, we, what I was being offered, motivational interviewing. And ever since, I've just been a, a student and now a practitioner of motivational interviewing and teacher. Yeah. Um, so, and over the years, after I, after I was in addictions for a long time, I, well, I moved and specialized in, in, in drugs and did some MET training alongside of that. And it's just part of, I suppose, an integrative part of what I do. So I'm trained person-centered. I've, did, I've done some psychodynamic training as well. So uh, often when I talk to people, I, I, I say, look, I'm, I'm proud to be a social worker. I love person-centered help and I love psychodynamics. But if I'm trying to be, if I'm precious about anything, it would be that is what I'm doing, helping this other person. 
So it's responding to the need. And um, I guess meet, meeting the need is the most effective way of helping. So working yeah. out what the person needs and then respond to that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you've got a, a huge kind of background in these, these different fields, which you've drawn together through your mm. experiences to, yeah, as you said, essentially listen to what the needs are of that person and then do your Absolutely. bit to, to meet those. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you had it nailed in the head there. It's, it's for me, the listening is at the core of it all. And the listening is more than just what the person is saying. It's listening behind what the person is saying and particularly listen to the emotion that is being communicated and uh, trying to understand what that emotion is and what that emotion is trying to say. Because yeah. for me, that's where need is communicated. It's communicated at an emotional level. And if I can hear what, how you're feeling, I'm better attuned then to understand what it is you're actually asking for or what that need is and how I might respond to it in a helpful way. So you, you're going beyond words and language here. Uh, well, I guess I am. I suppose the language, language, interestingly for me, includes emotion. You know, for me, emotion is the universal language that everyone speaks it. And that for me as a helping practitioner, what I've got to do is train my ear to that language. Um, recognizing fear in France is the same as fear in Mexico. Um, and it's, it's the language we're all born speaking. And given the fact for me, most of, most of us who are in the helping game are in the helping game because it's, it's instinctive. It's part of who we are. Um, and along what, what drives that is the, the gift of sensitivity. And that sensitivity is to other, other, the environment around us and more particularly to that emotional frequency. Uh, so that empath, that empathy, that, that, that's strong within helpers is, for me, is that ability to hear other people's emotions and recognize that I'm feeling them, but yeah. they're not mine. So I can experience your frustration, your happiness, your sadness, uh, and the skill is to be able to contain that and then to listen to that emotion and understand what's that saying for in relation to what this person's experiencing mm-hmm. uh, and then responding to that need. And, and motivation is a beautiful way of doing that, reflective listening, affirmations, that curiosity that comes with the open-ended questions. Um, it's just a lovely way of being curious, ideally without judgment, yeah. about what this person's experiencing right now. And that whole thing then about being able to trust that whatever the difficulty this person's experiencing or expressing, that the trust and acceptance is, they're, they're, the, they're their primary resource in resolving this. And what I can do is create the space for them to explore how, how they may go about that in the context of their whole life. Yeah. Yeah. God, I mean, gosh, there's, there's so much there, this sort of sense of stepping into someone's shoes, but also being able to step out again. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And but also, you know, you you, you mentioned being a, a help, a helping practitioner. I think that's what you said. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that is that what you call yourself? Well, it, it's it's the essence of who I am. It's so sometimes I tell you I'm a counselor. Sometimes I tell you I'm a trainer. Sometimes it really depends on the context. But the essence of who I am is I understand that that my nature is as a helper. Yeah. You know, I, I often use the metaphor when I'm teaching of the the hive as a, as a way of understanding the collective of human beings living in groups and that, that in that hive there are bees, helper bees, and I'm one of the helper bees. And for me, the, the purpose of the helper bee is to keep the hive healthy. 
and that's what we do. That's why we have an instinct to help. And that's why we have an instinct to understand. It's our sensitivities, to, particularly to other people's distress. And in motivation, when we talk about our writing reflex, and for me, that writing reflex is triggered by my sensitivity to your distress and my desire to make you okay, where the skill and the learning, whether it be motivation to or any other helping intervention, is about how to manage that awareness in a way that's going to be helpful for the other person so that the writing reflex is, look, let me fix this for you because I want you to be well, whereas motivation to and another good helping approaches are simply going, this is, this is difficult for you. What will help? And invite and evoke a response from the from the individual themselves as to how they might navigate their way through this difficulty uh, with my support rather than my direction. Yeah, yeah. So this this seems to be a major kind of I don't know, issue is a bit of a strong word, particularly from as a healthcare professional, where mm. a lot of the training and I'm trained in I was trained as a nurse and and trained as a physio and, and various other things, but but essentially. The, the idea was that you identify a problem which you then you fix. Yeah. yeah. Now, I don't subscribe to that view at all now, mm. but that, that's how, how I was trained. Mm. And so there's this, this pull, and, and it even comes through sometimes, you know, someone will say something, you think, right, how, how you want to sort of jump in and say, well, do this, do that. Yes. Um, whereas motivation interviewing is much more the, the kind of the sitting back and, and creating, as you said, you know, creating that situation. Mm. Um, whereby they they come up with with something something that they want to change through that sure. that dialogue yeah. um so that's kind of one aspect of it the other aspect of it is 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 people's expectations that you're going to fix them yeah yeah so if that comes up for you um where you're you're detecting maybe they're saying it overtly that the well, what are you you're going to fix me? That that kind of thing. How how do you manage that? Uh, how do you manage their expectations? Well, again, it's, it's starting by just acknowledging. So it sounds in some ways your your hope is that I will have answers for you. It it sounds like you your understanding is that I have the the way forward for you, and and what I can then offer is you know I do have ideas that may be of help to you, and I'm happy to share them with you. But in advance of me giving you my solution for you, I'm just curious, mm-hmm. what ideas have you already come up with? So there's a, it's, 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 it's the safety net is, look, I will tell you what I know if you need it. But before we explore what I think, what do you think? Uh, because again, it's recognized most people have grown up um, with other people making most of the major decisions in their lives. You know, what, 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 what they did at school, where they went on holidays, you know, even even in, in when we go to health and social care, we have that experience where we go along, we tell someone the problem, they tell us what they're going to do, and we just get on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it can be quite alien and, and quite uncomfortable for some people where they're invited to think and, and then articulate their own ideas mm-hmm. because they're not used to it. Or even more significantly, in the past when they have given their own ideas, they have been dismissed and they have become reluctant then to share their ideas. So it's, it's about how we as practitioners create that space for the individual to feel safe, to begin to step into that new or renew that relationship with themselves, which is their own ideas, their own thoughts, and helping them feel secure that, well, we may not, in answering the question about the way forward, they may not initially know the answer, but let's look at the ideas. And so there's this openness and this 
curiosity where they're not committing by saying something and not making a commitment to it initially. And what we can do is look at the different ideas and then with the expertise that I have in whatever area of intervention I'm offering, so whether it's drugs or alcohol or, or emotional well-being, there are things that I know that, that may be helpful for them to learn from me. But before I just give it to them, I find out what they already know. So again, one of the, the, the uh, tools in motivational viewing is the illicit, provide illicit. Or, uh, and so it's that information exchange protocol it's known as. So when we're giving information to other people or we're giving advice to people, what we're invited to do is just check what, what do you already know about this? Yeah. So then any information or advice that we give is the only the information advice that they need to add to what they already know. And very often when you, when you ask someone that, they'll, they've got all the information that they need. So there's no, there's no need for me to give them any more information. We can just explore what that information means to them and how they can then perhaps put in practice in the context of their life. And that's so important for us to realize is that while you may be presenting to me with being overweight or chronic pain, that it's understand that 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 situation exists in the context of that person's whole life. And any changes that they're going to make in relation to this one behavior or this one set of circumstance will need to be understood in the context of how it interrelates to the rest of their life. And only they know that. So it's so much, that's where the partnership comes in about me being curious. So how will that work for you in the context of everything else that's going on for you? Yeah. So it's, it's really acknowledging the, something that I think is often not acknowledged is that there's always a circumstance. Yeah. There's always a circumstance in which something is, is happening or, or arising. Yeah. And if you don't acknowledge yeah. that, you could quite easily slip into being very self-critical because you didn't do something in the way that you thought you should or sure. expected to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Everything makes sense. Again, it's, it's, it's inviting us to, to consider everything makes sense. We, just because we disagree with something doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. Someone using other drugs may not make sense to me or I, won't, I don't do it in my life, but they do it in their life. And the, the, the being curious is how does this fit in their life in a way that's meaningful for them? So that, again, it's back to that curiosity without judgment. I can I be curious about what you're doing without judging what you're doing? So I can get to know you and understand you because it's in that space that, that I'm getting to know you. You're hearing yourself describe yourself. And that comes back to what's called self-perception psychology, where the client starts to hear themselves talk about themselves in, a, in an environment where they feel accepted. And that in itself is very therapeutic and very healing just to find themselves talking about difficulties without someone judging or trying to solve it too quickly. Yeah. And then just explore, you know, what have you done? You know, the fact that you're talking about this and it's causing you difficulties would suggest that at some level you've already started to think about how you might resolve this. And I'm just curious, what are your ideas? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some people that have been through, you know, various systems and, and very likely will have received or felt judgment you know right the mm. way through so they could be very sensitive to that so despite the fact mm. as the clinician or therapist you you are not judging them you're, you're doing your best not to to judge them i guess at times people could still perceive that they are being judged yeah. but how how do you i mean are there, are there practical steps that someone could take to really try and create that that best non-judgmental type environment <laughs> Yeah, what a good question. Um, I suppose one of the things is, first of all, to recognize that 
when someone comes in and it sounds like they are judging you, the practitioner, it's about understanding what is what has happened to this person before. So very often people will come in and say, this service is rubbish or, you know, you social workers. So what they're doing is they're offering very generalized statements that if I took personally, I could be, be offended by. Yeah. But if I continue to listen with curiosity, I can hear they've, they've had some negative experiences with people just like me. And I can acknowledge that. You know, this, you know, coming in here is, is difficult or is challenging because there's times you've become, come along and you've met people like me and it hasn't been very helpful for you. And so it's really important that, that whatever I do, you find helpful because that's the only way you're going to find me and the service useful for you. And I guess one of the things then I can invite them to do is, you know, you can then help me understand when I'm doing something that you don't find helpful because my priority is to be helpful to you. And if I'm not doing it, I want to change what I'm doing in a way that's going to be useful for you. So maybe together we can work out what's how me and you can work together in a way that you find so useful and resourceful in a way that's going to help you. Yeah. Wow. That, that's so powerful because you could see how in so many circumstances that could go completely the opposite way and, and go very, very wrong very, very quickly. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's learning how not to take what the clients or service users or patients think about you personally because it's realizing they don't know you. Mm. They, they, they know who you represent and very often their criticisms and their pain to, is towards who you represent rather than you, the individual. And it's about how not to take that criticism personally, because I often say in my training, you know, how many people, how many of your clients or patients really know you? How many of them know your favorite number? How many of them know your favorite color? How many of them know where you met your partner? How many of them know where you went, where you, where you had your 21st birthday? How many of them know anything of real significance about who you are? So whenever they offer you an opinion of you, if you listen with curiosity, you can begin to understand they're, telling, they're teaching you more about them than they are about you if you pay attention. Yeah. Yeah, wow. So, I mean, the, these things, you know, as we're talking here, it, it's, you know, it's very natural. It's very authentic. Do you almost, do you not have to sort of think about this now? Is it, is it this is just Glenn. This is how I do it. This is how I communicate. Well, there's certainly an aspect of, of who Glenn is now has a, a very strong thread of what we know as the spirit of motivation. Um, and I remember uh, Bill Miller, one of the architects of MI, was asked the difference between doing MI and being MI. And this is about 10 years. No, he says that that's not a, it's not a, it's not a, after 10 years, it'll not just be it. But essentially, what he invited us to recognize is this is a process of, of discovery of about as much about ourselves as other people. And it's about how do we recognize our right, for example, our writing reflex. What is that? And how do we learn to recognize the desire to be helpful is, is within us and how then to manage it in a way that is of use to the other people. And I guess that over the years, um, I if you if you speak to people close to me. I've no doubt they will tell you how I speak with them, how I am with them is very different than how I was before I started learning motivation. Uh, because I, 
what has happened is, is I learned to be more empathic with other people. I've learned to experience my own empathy towards myself or my own internal dialogue. And I, I can have conversations with myself. I can uh, support myself now using MA as an approach in my own conversations when I'm upset, when I'm annoyed, when I'm angry, when I'm frustrated. Uh, I often go for walks on my own. So there's a strong part of me that would be um, an introvert. So I need, I need time on my own to recharge my batteries. And what I've learned to do is when I go, when I was training as a counselor many, many years ago, the, the tutor said, look, talk to yourself out loud. And I have ever since, you, you may see me walking in strange places talking out loud, or if I'm in town and I need a good yarn with myself, I'll turn my phone off and talk to my phone. So I'm answering myself on the phone. Uh, and really what I'm doing is I'm simply paying attention to that part of me that is out of balance. Yeah. And then the part of me that is, that is, that is a good listener, that is, that is, that is uh, safe can go, I can reflect to myself or the part of me that's distressed. You sound annoyed about this, that land. And then it flips over and then this annoyed voice speaks. And then the, 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 the attentive me responds. And um, so I've worked out many a problem with myself yeah. um, that way. And now when I'm with people, I'm much more conscious of this is not me. Again, it's back to that realization and then practice of, containing the, the environment that I'm in. Um, and that has come with time and with practice and my own therapy journey. Yeah. Wow. So, so you, you literally have these, these MI conversations with, with yourself. It's, it's almost like virtual chair work. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I describe them as myself. Yeah. So there's, um, and my understanding of them is, is that there's, their ego defenses that have developed over the years in response to different situations. And that, um, that, that when the, the, when the emotion arises, that if, if I check, if I come to my senses and check what I can see here, smell and feel and taste, if there's no evidence for me to be frightened and I'm feeling fear, mm. then the fear that I'm experiencing is a voice of a younger self. And what I can do is just go, hello. And you seem frightened. What's up? And what's happening is, is that, younger version of me is responding to his perception of what's going on. Yeah. And then I can meet his need by paying attention to him. That, mm. that, I, that idea that the, the need is expressed in an emotion, but very important that the emotion will move when the emotion is heard. And that's the same in my relationship with myself or in my relationship with an individual I'm endeavoring to support. Yeah. That whatever they're feeling softens and moves when it experiences itself being heard and understood. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly from a, from a persistent pain perspective, you know, one of the things that's very important to start off with is, is that, that, that hearing the person validating them and, and their story and, and MI yeah. just seems so perfectly set up for that yeah. key step. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's even realizing that, you know, People presenting with chronic pain, how they feel about it probably differs. So you'll hear the same story, but the need is different because the emotion attached to the story is what's been is where the need is is being uh, is, is, is that's where the need lives in the emotion. So somebody say I can you know I can hardly move, and I wouldn't say that they're they're going to be content, 
but the other people are going to be really quite distressed because of the price that that stiffness or pain causes them. And it's about understanding that in the context. So the pain is one thing. The impact emotionally on them is another thing that yeah. can, we can listen for. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and you know, that's the part that, that we can often hear and, and address really quite quickly in, mm. in practical ways once that yeah. situation has arisen where we're, we've said we've got some suggestions and they allow us mm. to... Mm. To, to make them um but just just going back to your your sort of internal mi conversations i'm i'm yeah. really interested in in that i'm a, I'm a big fan of um tick uh, nat han and, and he his book on communication you know makes the point around you know we we obviously talk to others but we're always talking to to ourselves and and how we talk to ourselves yes. i was just wondering you, you mentioned that your counsel your counseling trainer sort of made some observations around that but have you sort of pursued that with other people as you've gone on or is it just something you've developed yourself in, re in, in relation to what the, the internal dialogue having the conversations with myself yeah this this skill i mean it's a skill it's a practice isn't it to do that yes yes yeah well you know i've been in therapy in one shape or another probably about 30 years the greatest the greatest gift i have ever given myself is having a therapist and certainly I would recommend it to anybody who's listening. Get yourself a therapist that you can trust mm. and give yourself an hour, a week, a month, a quarter, where you just pay somebody to give you their full attention and just to pay attention to your experience. So, and and in, in that space, healing becomes possible. And um, I guess that I have integrated a lot of very good helpers into my relationship with myself. And um, I guess, I suppose as a trainer, as not a trainer, as a practitioner as well, when I'm with and around other people who practice, there's always an ear listening for how they do it and go, oh, I like that. Mm -hmm. I like the way they did that. And begin to integrate that into my toolbox and say, look, this is another choice. Um, and just appreciating that every day is a school day and that uh, that relationship I have with, with myself um, I, I practiced transcendental meditation and I studied philosophy for, for a few years as well. And just that idea of, you know, big picture understanding that, you know, philosophers have been trying to make sense of, of our, our human condition for two and a half, three thousand years. And they've offered us lots of different ideas. And my sense is that psychology is the secularization of the spiritual realities yeah. And it's just going, look, this is about love. This is about understanding. This is about acceptance. This is about forgiveness, not just of other people, but of yourself, your own relationship with yourself. Can you forgive yourself? Can you love yourself? Can you love the parts of you? Can you love your enemy? And that, for me, there's lots of enemies within me. They speak very harshly towards me. And there's parts of myself I struggle to be with. And that's my journey mm. to becoming more at peace with myself is, not trying to get rid of those enemies, but actually getting to know them and understand their purpose and helping them live their purpose slightly differently. And in the same ways, very often that's what I'm doing with my clients is helping them to you know, reflect on how they are and how close to their true selves they're being yeah. and how far, and that idea that we're probably having really difficult days when we're not being true to ourselves. It's how do we bridge that space in a way that's manageable for this individual to become who they're supposed to be. Yeah. And, and, and I simply join them in that journey 
and offer them guidance where appropriate. Yeah. Wow. That's an amazing insight. You know, I really appreciate you, you sharing that. That's very personal. Um, but, and, and your encouragement for people to, to have a therapist, you know, that's something that for many years has, has kind of bothered me in that I'm aware that in, in the psychologies, and I use that in its broadest sense, that, sure. that, that supervision and therapy is, is part of the deal. It's part of what yeah. you do. Yeah. Whereas in other professions, you know, say I trained as a nurse, I trained as a physio, there's, there's, not, there's nothing. It's only, I mean, I work independently. It's only if I bother to go and seek out mentors and, and coaches yeah. and therapists. And, and I've always been that way inclined. So I've been very lucky with the people that I, I know who mm. share time and whatnot with me. Um, but you don't have to. Um, yeah. And that's to me, is a problem because you know we as a, as a nurse or a physio or a doctor and, and lots of other professions that i haven't mentioned um yeah. have to face our own difficulties because we're all human and the difficulties of the people that we're trying to to help so it just mm. seems crazy to me that, that that wouldn't be encouraged yeah well I, I guess it's the idea that they have to probably goes against the spirit of, of MI, which is you're being told you have to do something. <laughs> it's about recognizing it's, it's just about going, look, this, this is available. You don't have to do it. But certainly if, if you're interested, I would encourage you just to give it a go. You know, a lot of therapists, I know that, that I offer people free 20 minute consultations so they can just hear what it's like to talk to me and, and see if there's a connection before they make any commitment to any ongoing work. And it's recognizing if you are going looking for a therapist, they're going to work for you. So you don't have to take the first person you speak to. And, and if it's not working, you can sack them. <laughs> You're paying them. They, they work for you. you yeah. Know, so. and, and actually, we should all be okay with that on, on either side because, you know, we don't, as you said, we don't have to work with this person. We're not going to click with, with everybody um despite you know the the right intentions and whatnot so that that should be that should be cool okay that's fine yeah it's and, and it takes courage i know that that taking that first step to go and ask for help was a big step yeah and for most people that is going to be the big step because they're 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 struggling with their own ideas of what asking for help or getting the help with whatever it is they're challenged with will will result in for themselves and you know, even asking for help is about, look, there's things I feel vulnerable about and I've learned to keep them to myself. The idea of sharing them has been a danger in the past. Mm-hmm. So the idea of sharing them now potentially is a danger. So it's, it's again, it's so important then that if you do decide to talk to someone, that follow your instinct. Does it, are, they, are they creating a space where it's safe for you to only be talking about what you're ready to talk about? And if you're not ready to talk about a particular issue, do they change the subject and let you let that be okay? Mm. Um, so that you're not being forced into doing anything when you're in your therapeutic conversation. That it's there, it's there to make help you feel, first of all, safe. Yeah. To be safe to be for you to be safe to be frightened. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it, it does seem that we, and again, this is a very general comment, that we do have an issue with with asking for help. You know, a lot, a lot of people who I work with, uh, they, there are a lot of limitations in their lives at, at the moment. They're seeking sure. to, you know, get better and, and to be able to do more and more. But 
as it stands right now, there are limitations and, and they want to be so independent, but they have to ask for help for stuff that they've never had to yes. ask for help yes. before. Sure. Fantastic. And, and some people, you know, they really, really resist that. Yes. Really resist. Yes. And that's someone in yes. a situation, let alone, you know, a therapist, for example, or a clinician um, who, who might say, well, I, I don't need I don't need help. I don't, I don't need, why do I need therapy? I'm not mad or whatever, whatever, it, yes. whatever yeah. it may be. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, again, it's just recognized for some people that's their truth. And the idea of allowing themselves to challenge that is uncomfortable and potentially even frightening, but it's also recognizing from a practitioner's perspective, that's exactly what we're asking every one of our clients or patients to do with us. Yeah. And are we prepared to walk, a path that we're asking our clients to walk or is it just them that have to walk it because we're, we're already fixed. We're already okay. You know, we're, 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 we are the pure, perfect and complete um, or else going, you know what? We're all on the same journey. Some of us are in different parts, different parts along that journey. And I guess for me, what's so important to recognize is that as human beings, we're social creatures. We live and work in groups. The most effective, most content human beings are the people who live in relation. That I can't be myself on my own. I can't become who I can be by myself. It's only in the context of other people that I can flourish and become the biggest version of myself. Yeah. And once I learn to accept that, it's it's not always nice having to admit that. And I know that certainly at the early stages of my therapy, you know, the number of times I went why didn't somebody tell me that? You know, I discovered <laughs> something about myself. <laughs> discovered something uncomfortable about myself and, and just realized, my God, why didn't anybody tell me? And to realize they've, they've, been, they've been trying for years, it's just I wasn't ready to hear it. Yeah. But that, accept, that acknowledging that there are certain things about me that are counter to my nature or my sense of self, that won't, it's only by becoming aware of it then I can begin to do something about it. It's if I continue to believe or tell myself that I'm not like that, then it remains in my unconscious and I act it out without my awareness, but everybody else can see it. Uh, so yeah. it's how do I bring this uh, Jungian idea of the shadow? How do I look into my shadow, not to get rid of it, but to bring it into the light so I can then con consciously make decisions about my greed or my selfishness or my lust rather than just acting it out unconsciously. Yeah. It, it does seem that we're, we're in our culture that we are encouraged to, you know, ignore, distract, cover up, don't go there, sure. um, as opposed to, you know, facing and, and, and seeking to heal, transform, whatever word you want to use. Mm. Yeah, and, and there's perfectly good reasons for that. It's, it's the way we've learned to stay safe, Yeah, you know, and, and, and what a really clever thing to do, keep yourself safe. Yeah. It's about exploring, it's, this is not about giving up your safety, this is about adapting how you keep yourself safe. This is not about giving up your, your, your search for growth. This is about adapting how you grow in a way that's going to be meaningful for you at this stage of your development. Yeah. There's lots of caveats, aren't there? In what ways? Well, in that there's just that last bit there that you, you described, there's... There's, there's always there's always a surrounding consideration. And I guess I guess yeah. it's the sort of the ability to zoom out, as we were saying before, considering yeah. the, the circumstances yeah. um, in there. And uh, and again, you know, you, you spoke about the fact that if you create those conditions of, of safety and you you hear 
then then healing can begin whether that's a conversation with yourself or with yeah someone else yeah 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 it's in that in that place of acceptance that things become possible yeah. that the, the 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 nature of the individual themselves that pure rogerian notion that you know that the who you can be was in you at the beginning and all that all its influence and well, how much of you comes into fruition is the environment you find yourself at any any given time. And that's the opportunity from a, you know, in the spirit of MI or the pure Rogerian perspective is what I can do is create the environment where things are possible. You don't have to grow, but growth is possible. Yeah. And and what I do is I continue to accept you whether you grow or not. Yeah. Because that choice belongs to you. You don't have to grow for me to value you. I value you. Full stop. And I value because you're you. And that's, that's the challenge of the person centered of this. That's so powerful. I mean, I can even feel emotion coming up. You dis- just saying that, describing it, mm. just kind of imagining mm. what that would be like to have someone say it. Because so, it seems so rare that that sort of thing happens. It's almost like the ideal yeah. parent. Well, there you are. You know, it's it, this comes from you know, the truth with a capital T and it's just, we, we, we uh, describe it in different ways, whether it's from a spiritual perspective or a psychology perspective or, a, you know, a um, philosophy perspective, it's, you know, we're all describing something that, that, that is the truth, which is human beings thrive in a context where they feel accepted for who they are and they feel validated and, and loved because they are. And then they can be helped to negotiate the challenges and responsibilities of being a human being in a social context and the rules and regulations that need to be played out to be a good member of society. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, the, the who they are, in essence, is start, the starting point is they're good because they are them. And that's, that's the, it's maybe not so much what I would say to a client. It's, it's the idea of how do I create an environment where they experience that from me? How do they experience my acceptance? Rather than me saying, I really accept you. It's how do they experience me accepting them? And that's going to be common. That'll come across in how I treat what they say to me. Do I, am I genuinely listening? Am I genuinely curious? Do they experience themselves talk about things that are difficult? And then hear me be curious without judgment that makes it different from how that might've been experienced in the past. And it's in that moment where something different has happened, mm. happening in the relationship, the change becomes possible that I have to treat you in a way that's different from what you're used to for you to change. Because if I treat you the way you've always been treated, then things stay the same. Yeah. Like, like the teacher that always expects the kid to misbehave. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that not self can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. But what's so important about that is recognizing that from a helping perspective, that the reason, the reason why I see this individual misbehave may be because not that this child is, is, is a difficult child, but it's just that he's a difficult child when he's with me. <laughs> and it's in the context of my relationship with him. And again, that's, that's so important that in the past, in the first two editions of MI, the MI book, they talked, Muller and Rolling talked about resistance. And, and the, more, the, the, the third edition, they described it now as discord. And the discord's about that itch in the relationship that in many ways, the reason why there's this thing called resistance 
if we understand it like uh, like if we're playing a tune together that we're out of tune with each other and the challenge for me then as a practitioner is to recognize there's a couple of notes that aren't in uh, in aligned alignment here so it's for me to re it's for me to reach in me to their sound for the connection to for the discord to soften it's yeah. not that they are a difficult person they're not a difficult person I find them difficult. It's not their difficult. It's me. The struggle belongs to me. And because it belongs to me, it's, it's if I'm interested in, in about how to make this change, the responsibility for changing that is mine because it's my difficulty. So the idea of a difficult challenge and hard to reach unmotivated client, if we look close enough, anybody we generally describe as difficult challenge and hard to reach unmotivated, it's generally just somebody who doesn't want to do it my way. Yeah. And the question we have to ask is, why would anybody do anything my way? Who am I? Who am I? <laughs> because I said you know? so. Because I'm the teacher. Yes. Because I'm your yeah, parent. There we go. There we go. And people are used to that. Yeah. And so they, they fall into that transactional situation where, I'm because I'm the authority figure, they experience that being the parent. And I then fall into a situation where I have less power. And I just do what I'm told. Or else I tell you what you need to hear. Yeah. to get out of this situation and that's less productive than me going this is really difficult what'll help yeah and my interest being in your well-being because i'm okay <laughs> you know your well-being you getting you becoming a healthier happier human being doesn't change who i am doesn't make me a better person it makes you it makes you happier but that doesn't make that doesn't change who I am. That's my responsibility. So I don't that 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 journey that uh, that I have experienced is learning to depend less on my clients or my service users making inverted commas progress for me to go. That was a good day. Mm. It was going, you know, my my sense of self or my sense of success as an individual as a practitioner shouldn't be attached to whether my clients change or not. And so important, if you think of from a, a cycle of change or trans-theoretical model change, the idea that most of the way we assess change is what we can observe. So you know, what they're telling us they're changing or we can see them changing. But on the model, that's only, two, two, that's only a third of the whole model. That's only in, in action and maintenance. And the rest of the time, it's either change that's happening at a cognitive level, or it's change in reverse, which is the relapse. Mm. And if I judge my success on you changing so I can see it, I'm going to get my heart broken mm. because I'm missing out on the opportunity to see and recognize that. And I think that's why Steve Rolnick and Bill Miller changed the concept of the definition of motivation living away from behavior change to change because it's recognizing that for behavior change to take place, change in thinking has to happen first. We have to change. We have to help someone change the way they think mm -hmm. before we help them change their behavior, and that's those first stages of the the model of change that the, the, the contemplation, the way they're thinking about it. Mm -hmm. But even in the thinking of it, they're working. Yeah, and it's how do we recognize the effort that they're already putting in, and that's where the affirmations are very powerful, where we're we're not looking for the end result, we're celebrating effort. Yeah, in whatever form. And we recognize it and contextualize it. So that the success, if you like, if people want a measure of success, it's more around the, the effort that the person puts in rather than 
some kind of result or goal being achieved, do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's, it's back to why does this person need to do anything for me to accept them? And that's the challenge. That's the back to the, the Rogerian concept of unconditional positive regard. What if I could offer you my help because I have it to give? Mm. What you do with it is none of my business. <laughs> I'm giving you this help. Why? Because it's my nature. I like helping people. This is, this, I've chosen this path. I really enjoy helping people. So it's in that, and what I'm doing is I'm being myself when I'm being helpful. Mm. But if I measure who I am based on your decision to help respond, then I'm offering conditional acts of helping. Yeah. So I'm, I'm letting somebody out of the junction, expecting them to wave. Mm. That's an, that's, that's an, and then if you wave, all's good in the hood. But if you don't wave, I'm, I'm really frustrated. I'm actually quite resentful to the point where I probably won't let the next person out of the next junction. Because yeah. you didn't do what you were supposed to do, which was lift your finger 45 degrees and let the world know how wonderful I was. <laughs> but unconditional positive regard is I let you out because I can. Yeah. If you wave, fantastic. If you don't, fantastic. I let you out because I had the time and the space to give it to you. Yeah. And you're welcome to it. Yeah. And, and within that is the, the feeling of pleasure, joy, success, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm giving it to you because I recognize it was given to me first. The fact that I have the time and space to give it to you is because I didn't get here by myself. Yeah. You know, that I have this opportunity because of the help and support I get either formally or informally in all of my interactions with the world every day. And that, that, that counterbalance to that unconditional, unconditional positive regard is the practice of gratitude. And the more I can be grateful and recognize what it is that I've been given by others without them ever having, without me ever having to ask them, then it's easier for me to give it away. And it's understanding that when I practice gratitude genuinely and not just think about what I'm grateful for, but experience the gratitude, then I begin to recognize my glass isn't half full. My glass isn't half empty. My glass is overflowing. I can give more of myself and never run out because I'm always been given. Yeah. Which means that I can comfortably, if I'm not in a rush and I see you needing out, I can let you out. Because you're one of us. There you go. Yeah. No, that's, that, that's, 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 a, that's discipline. That's practice. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. Big time. And, and you've clearly practiced and practiced and practiced. And was, was there someone who kind of inspired you down this route? I've met some fantastic teachers along the way. Um, from an MA perspective, you know, both Bill and Steve have offered very important insights. You know, Bill in particular comes across as just this acceptance. <laughs> you know, he embodies, he embodies the spirit of MA. He's just this really gentle, kind, wise human being. And um, and a few years ago, myself and Seb, as part of our podcast, we, we did some interviews at, when we were in uh, New Orleans. And just, you know, I think it was a, maybe the 30th year we were celebrating Mint. And we just said to Bill, this must, this must be great for you just to you know, see this family that you started. And he was just so humble about it. He's just, you know, and it's just that... A, 
that offer of genuineness, which is he loves what he's doing, but he's gracious. He doesn't have to build himself up. He's a, he comes across as someone who's so much at peace with himself. And that's what is attractive to me, mm. is meeting people who seem to be at peace with themselves and just being curious, how do you, how do, you do that? Because <laughs> I'd like that for myself. Yeah. You know, seeing people and just, you know, a, a few years ago, I took my daughter over to, uh, she was going to university in Liverpool, and we were walking around the town centre, and there was just these two women, and they had a, for me, they just had a glow about them. And it turned out that they were both, um, uh, what's the name? Krishna, Krishna, Krishna nuns. Yeah. yeah. But they just emanated peace. And they just did their glow. I saw them in the crowd and they were just these two really gentle human beings who just looked so at peace with themselves. And I went, I like that. Yeah. I like that. And you can see it. You can see it in people. Oh, I mean, yeah. there's nothing you can't say, oh, look, look at that thing. But you can just yeah. see it and sense it. Yeah. And again, it's, 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 it's recognising that that emotional energy is... Trans is transmitted. You know, uh, I studied the emotional intelligence, and the emotional intelligence was talk about the idea of, of emotions being contagious. Mm-hmm. So it's another way of recognizing we can experience other people's feelings because the emotion has an energy. While we can't see it or touch it, we can feel it. And particularly, that's again so important for anybody who is a helper. It's recognizing there's times when you're with people. And you don't know what to do next. It's recognizing what if you were to discover it's the reason why you don't know what to do next is because you're with a client who's stuck. Or the reason why you're feeling frustration with this client is because you're with a really frustrated client. This, what if this feeling wasn't yours? It was the sound of their feelings. And what, what would you do if you could learn to listen to that with, and then understand it and then reflect it or respond to it and acknowledge this is hard. What do you want to do about it? You know, this is really frustrating for you because you don't want it to be like this. How would you like it to be? Yeah, it, it always offers something, doesn't it? There's, there's, it just allows you to keep that, that motion, but in just this very gentle, yeah, gentle way. Um, non you know just non-threatening it's um just sees the person and their their strengths yeah this this person has many characteristics many 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 aspects to themselves and they're here because something in their life is misaligned either described by somebody else in their assessment and diagnosis or in their own diagnosis look i am struggling with this mm-hmm. but what they're saying is part of who i am is out of kilter yeah. Not who I am. Mm. Now, sometimes people come along and say because they feel out of balance that it's their whole their experience is so overwhelming that it is their whole self. But that's where the opportunity for the practitioner to hold that whole person and gently bring to their awareness that those aspects of their life where there are no difficulties that they may be taken for granted. And it's about how to again, that's where the affirmations are so powerful, is what we're noticing is things that potentially people have learned to take for granted for themselves and we choose not to take them for granted. Yeah. You know, being a mum is hard work and it involves so many 
strengths and talents and abilities and gifts to be able to get up in the morning and go down and feed your kids. But it would be so easy to just dismiss that and say, well, that's what a mother's supposed to do. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's what, each, it's what a mother or father or lover does by choice. And we can be curious, why would they make those choices for other people? And it teaches you about the strengths and the characteristics of this individual. You just notice it to them. Yeah. You seem very determined. You seem very curious. You seem, you know, it, being a good mom is important to you. It sounds like your kid's success is, is a priority for you. And it sounds like you're prepared to make sacrifices in your life so that your children can flourish. What a really kind thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, whereas it'd be, it's easy to criticise, isn't it? And, and say that, oh, you're being a helicopter parent or, or all of those kinds of terms that, that come up, pointing it out that way. And of course, that, that's going to go really well. Um. <laughs> and again, that's back to just the perspective. Steve Ronick often talks about the lens which we look at a situation through. And we can look through a deficit world, a deficit lens. And what you see is the problems, the difficulties, the things that are missing about this human being that if we could fill in those gaps, they would become a better person. Yeah. Because if we change the lens and put on a strength-based lens, what we do is we look at what they have and build from there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Gosh, there's, there's so much. There's so much in it. And what, what this has sort of been in, in slight reverse, and we're, we're kind of coming to the end of our, our conversation, which... Mm. which um, I always feel is has been a great one when there's just loads more questions and maybe we could have a part two, three, four, etc. But um, but what we haven't done or what I haven't asked you yet for for some people listening is well what actually is motivation interviewing? What on earth have we been talking about? <laughs> yeah, what a good question. Oh, well, I, I the, the probably the easiest way to describe it is it, it's. It's a form of communication. It's a, it's, a, it's a way of developing and maintaining a meaningful relationship with another human being. And it's, a, it's a, uh, using insights from thousands of years of wisdom to go, what is it that human beings respond to in a way that makes them feel safe to explore challenges and opportunities that they may be experiencing? And in that, it's about the practitioner creating that space where there's acceptance, where they practice compassion, where they be curious without judgment in a way that's trusting the other person. And, and the trust isn't that this person, if you walk in the room, this person's not going to steal your computer. It's trusting that this individual is a resourceful uh, individual, that they themselves are a resource which you want to tap into to help them move forward so that you're not always having to come up with the answers, that you're not always the one that has to uh, do the work. And again, I think it was, Bill once said that if whoever's, if you want to know who's doing most of the work in a session, notice who's doing most of the talking. So if you're talking most in your, your helping situation and your helping scenarios, then you're doing most of the work in that conversation. Whereas if you can create an environment where you invite the client to do more of the talking, then you're having to work less and the client's working harder to resolve this for themselves. So it's, just, it's, we could say it's a set of techniques. One of the ways of describing it is, is that there's a, one of the metaphors is it's like a tree. So at the, and the roots of the tree is this, what's called the spirit, which is a lot of what we were talking about today, that, that mindset, that heart set, as Steve Ronick describes, that heart set of the practitioner. How do I understand the world? How do I understand human, humanity? How do I understand human relationships that I can then bring to the relationship? 
and then from the trunk then there's the 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 strategies the open strategies the open and equation affirmations the reflective listening and whatever else and then the last thing we learn is the tools you know it's uh, it's it's recognizing that the tools of this technique only work if the mechanic is in the right place it's not the tools that fix the engine it's the mechanic and the mechanic needs to understand the engine to yeah. be effective and really making a difference. And it's yeah. about trusting this other person. And um, that's that's a as broad a brush as I can paint it for you. There's, there's a lot more specific definitions. I know that Stephen Bell have come up with three or four for different scenarios, whether you're working as a pure therapist or whether you're working in a, you know, a, an ad hoc or a situation where you pepper your interventions with, with MI type skills yeah. um, so that it's accessible. And that's, I think that's what's been so important for Bill and Steve is that they make this, this intervention as accessible to as many people as possible. And, and when I'm doing my training, very often I, I, I talk about this, we'll talk about this thing called motivation, but more specifically, what we're going to talk about is good helping skills. Yeah. So people don't feel obliged to go away and have to be an MI practitioner that they can go away and enhance what it is they're trying to do, which is to be a good helper. Yeah. And they can use some of this thing called motivation to add to what it is they're doing without putting too much pressure on them to go away and have to be more than they can be at any given time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Oh, Glenn, it's been so good to hear more about, you know, your thoughts and insights and, and, your, and for sharing your own experiences. You know, that's, that was amazing. Um, where where can people find you? Okay, well, um, if they're Twitter people, I'm at, at Glenn Hines with two N's, so it's at G-L-E-N-N-H-I-N-D-S, or my website is www.glennhines.com. Uh, myself and my good friend Sebastian Kaplan also co-host a podcast called Talking to Change, uh, a motivational interviewing podcast, and you'll get that in most good podcast sites um, and you can also follow that podcast on Twitter at Change Talking. And um, if people want to just email me, it's Glenn at Glenn Hines, G-L-E-N-N at G-L-E-N-N-H-I-N-D-S.com for any conversations, whether it be about training or one-to-one interventions. Fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll put all those on the, um, on the page so people can um, yeah. access the links. And I, I mean, I love doing the on, I, it was online because obviously you were over there and I'm, I'm here and it was, that was, that was brilliant. And, and the podcast you do with Sebastian is, is excellent. There's some brilliant episodes on there. And actually the one with Bill Miller talking about the book, um, yes. which wasn't that long ago. Mm. Yeah, that, that one I've listened to a number of times. There's, I mean, there's just so much in these. Um, yes. it's, yeah, it's absolute yeah, gold. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. There's some good people out there. And, you know, we're very fortunate. We've, like you said, we've, we've just crossed the 50 episode threshold now. And, you know what, there's, it's just a mine of wisdom and insight. And both Seb and I just have learned so much on this journey. We started off just wanting to do it and see what happens. And we're still enjoying it. And we're still getting to meet some really fantastic people who have great experience, knowledge and insight that, that they're willing to share with us and, and our audience. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Yeah, and, very um, welcome. Catch up soon. Yeah, indeed. Thanks. <laughs>